Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Everybody and welcome to episode 44 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And today we are spending some time talking about Ludwig von Beethoven. As you probably have heard, we've been spending some time talking about the late Romantic Germans, and so we think it's only fair that we take a look back at where they came from with the original Romantic German, Ludwig von Beethoven. Now, there is so much to cover about Beethoven since he's such a popular composer, and so the biography that we'll be presenting to you today is much truncated. But if you are curious about more of Beethoven's life, we do encourage you to continue your research beyond this podcast. So our Beethoven tale begins in 1770, which for reference is 20 years after J.S. Bach died, and Ludwig von was born into a musical family as not the first Ludwig von Beethoven, for his grandfather was also Ludwig von Beethoven and also a musical person, a singer. His grandfather and father were both actually employed as singers by the Elector of Cologne, and like most composers from musical families, our Beethoven was first taught by his father. Later, though, he started organ and violin with a family friend, and then a distant relative, and both instructors were very tough on him. This might be why, later in his teaching life, Beethoven himself was so famously strict. When he was 17 years old, Beethoven traveled to Vienna with the intention to meet, and maybe study with, Mozart. Mozart was at first unimpressed by Beethoven's chosen showpiece for the meeting, however, but he was impressed when Beethoven improvised on a theme, and this was very important to Mozart because improvising was a very important skill during the classical period, and it was something that Mozart himself was quite remarkable at. Proving that classical music and jazz are indistinguishable. (laughs) And after this meeting, Mozart remarked to others that Beethoven was bound to make a name for himself. Beethoven lived to be 57 years old, and scholars have been able to identify three distinct different periods of his life based on the style of his music. And it's partly these three different styles that allowed Beethoven to be a bridge between the classical and romantic eras because he was willing and able to adapt to the changing tastes of the times. We'll talk through each period a little, focusing on the symphonies of these periods, since later we'll be talking about his latest Beethoven Symphony No. 9. His early period, the first period of his life, includes Symphonies 1 and 2. 
So this period is marked by the experimental phase of a younger musician who's still trying to figure out his style. But also keep in mind that this was taking place kind of at the tail end of the classical era. And so these two factors, his young musician style and the classical style, mean that this music tends to be a little more restrained than the more beloved works that come from later in his life. The middle period encompasses symphonies 3 through 8 and is often called the heroic period. During this time, Beethoven was struggling with the fact that he was losing his hearing, but he had finally reached the maturity people now expect from his works, and his hearing progressively got worse as this period went on. And finally, the late period closes Beethoven's life, with the only symphony from this time being Symphony No. 9, which was written between 1822 and 1824. Beethoven had now basically gone completely deaf, and his works from this time are very progressive, and some are even more theoretical rather than musical. And this partly could have been a conscious choice, because Beethoven had had a long and successful career and might now have just wanted to try something new, but it could have also been from the fact that he had to trust his memory of what things sounded like and didn't really know for sure if what he was writing actually sounded good. So miraculously, most of what does come out of this late period, even if it does sound a little funky in parts, is still listenable. Beethoven's health had slowly declined for years until his final few months when he began a rapid decline until his death in 1827. During this time, he worked on several of his late string quartets, which are regarded as extremely experimental and might have even been considered a little out there for early romantics. And here's an interesting and fun anecdote about Beethoven's death. There's always fun anecdotes about death. <laughs> he apparently already knew that he was going to die soon, and a few days before he died, he had his friends gathered around and said, Applaud now, the comedy is over and then he fell into a coma. But apparently, he awoke out of it during a raucous thunderstorm and shook his fist at the sky just before dying. Dramatic until the very end. So we're going to be discussing his only symphony written during the late period, Symphony Number no. 9, subtitled the Choral Symphony. And as we said before, this symphony was written from 1822 to 1824. And while this period was a very experimental phase for Beethoven, you're probably actually quite familiar with a few parts of the symphony. And apparently, just as we love to hear it now, the audience in attendance at his premiere was equally as enthusiastic. So one part that we are sure you know, even if you haven't heard it in symphonic form, or never listened to classical music at all, <laughs> it's the famous Ode to Joy melody that is heard during the fourth movement. But how did this melody get the name Ode to Joy? Well, the part of the symphony that gives the subtitle choral holds that answer. Beethoven loved the poem Ode to Joy, written by Frederick Schiller, and had wanted to set it to music for a while. He finally came up with the rightly joyful melody, and he also got to break some boundaries by incorporating a vocal element into his symphony to sing the poem's lyrics. Betreten Feuer, Funken, Himmel, Schönheit, Heiligtum, 
And then he goes on with the whole choir and orchestra performing a set of nine variations. Two fugues. before finally coming to the triumphant declaration of tonic in true Beethovenian fashion as we come to the grand finale, firework-worthy ending. Now another part of the Ninth Symphony you might have heard before is the very beginning of the second movement, as it is frequently used as an introduction or transition in a promotional setting. Less commonly heard but still popular is the actual meat of the second movement, Beethoven's quick and delightful scherzo. However, this symphony being over an hour long, in most performances, is a bit more unknown. So take for example the beginning of the first movement. It is very quiet with a little repetitive motif that builds up to a much grander statement. This is interesting writing because it shows how Beethoven had a great influence over many romantic composers to come after him. Recall in our 42nd episode about Mahler's Symphony No. 1, where he started with a very quiet sustained note that was interrupted by a little repetitive motif as well. You're probably not so familiar with the third movement of this symphony. Curiously, Beethoven made the third movement of this symphony the slow adagio but recall that that honor usually goes to the second movement, which in this case, as we've already shown you, is the upbeat scherzo movement, so doing a little inversion of the inner movements. And without the addition of the vocalists in the fourth movement, I think that this third movement itself could have also earned the symphony its name chorale because of the exquisite harmonic interplay that Beethoven creates with the strings that is reminiscent of the chorales dating as far back as Bach even. Now let's talk about harmony. In the past on the coffee house, we've mentioned many different ways to make harmony, meaning the chords and the key that make a piece sound a certain way. And we've talked about counterpoints, modes, major and minor keys, and modulations, and how these pieces of music theory come together to make things sound good. Beethoven definitely knew about all of these, but when he wrote music, he would have to trust the theory was good enough to make his music sound good too since at this point he couldn't hear it. Regardless if what is written turned out exactly how Beethoven heard it in his head, I think he still got some pretty good and cool sounds. 
So take this progression in the first movement, for example. We hear a downward sequence, but in the bass line, we hear what could almost be described as a modern rendition of Pachelbel's canon bass line. This is just about the only place in Beethoven's symphonic output that we hear a progression like this, but we hear dramatic progressions like this throughout the rest of the Romantic era. Then, in the fourth movement, we come to one of the most confusing sounding chords in the whole symphonic repertoire until maybe the 20th century. So this chord happens right at the beginning of the movement, and it is jarring. It's made by combining a D minor chord with a B flat major chord, and those two keys have very little to do with each other. Note that D minor is the third of B flat, but that's really not even a common progression anyway, yeah. and the symphony's in D minor anyway. It'll work together that well. So this sounds very strange indeed. But Beethoven quickly brings us back into some sense of normalcy with some restatements of the themes that we heard in the previous movements. Here's movement one. Movement 2. And movement 3. Then finishing with a brief hint of what's to come in movement 4. So with one of the most unified musical ensembles that, that could possibly be with percussion and strings and winds and a full chorus, it has been said that this Ninth Symphony is the epitome of humanity, a celebration of this unity and freedom. The Ode to Joy is sometimes used as an international anthem of the European Union as a sign of unity and often played at New Year's Eve celebrations as a signal of hope for the new year. And because of this melody, a deaf Beethoven could never hear. He is one of the most celebrated composers in the world. I think that's incredibly poignant. It is. And I don't think when Beethoven wrote it, he really appreciated how great a movement of unity and freedom that this symphony would make. But we are still listening to it, enjoying it now in the same way that he wanted people to enjoy it when he first wrote it. And I think that's very telling of the greatness of him as a composer. So if you like what we do here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, follow our podcast feed on Podbean and consider writing us a review on iTunes or Google Play, telling a friend all of that jazz. <laughs> all that classical so for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, my name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was performed live by the Skidmore College Orchestra. You can find the Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play. Like our Facebook page and share episode links with your friends. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.